We're looking this morning at the subject of wrong ways of handling guilt for sin. The first thing I want to say, and you'll notice in your bulletin outline, is that guilt for sin is universal. doesn't matter what race you belong to, what culture you belong to. It doesn't matter how you were brought up. It doesn't matter who your parents were, what your ancestry is. Everybody in the world experiences some kind of guilt. Unless a person is a sociopath, and that we talked about last week, their conscience is so seared uh, with regard to repeated sin that it doesn't bother them anymore. Unless you're that kind of person, everyone experiences feelings of guilt because everyone breaks God's law. Guilt for sin is universal because sin is universal. Look at our text, Romans 1, verse 19. What may be known about God is plain to them, plain to mankind, because God has made it plain to them. Okay? Who God is, Creator and Lord, what He demands of His creatures, these things has been, have been clearly seen, leaving all people, verse 20 of our text, without excuse. Without excuse. In other words, guilty as charged for their disobedient conduct to this God and they're liable to the penalty that the law would bring upon them. Now this is real guilt for real sin and so people have devised ways to handle the guilt feelings. They become what I would call excellent handlers. A handler is a problem solver. In the movie, The Horse Whisperer, Robert Redford played the role of a rancher who had a particular knack for handling difficult horses. And the story revolves around a woman and her daughter whose horse was totally unmanageable, even dangerous to be around. And so they heard about this guy and they trailered their horse across country to his ranch so that this handler, known as the horse whisperer, could go to work bringing calmness and civility to this traumatized stallion. He was a horse handler. In the business world, when a problem arises in the company due to difficulties in negotiating, say, let's say with a contractor or with the government, perhaps. The CEO of the company might call a meeting of the corporate lawyers and he says to them something like this. We have this problem with the contract negotiations and I expect you guys to handle this. That's why I pay you. Now he says that and when he says that he wants them to handle this, he is saying, I want you to deal with it. I want you to fix it. I want you to resolve this so we can move on. And likewise, because all of us sin, all of us experience guilt feelings, but guilt is painful. Guilt feelings are disruptive to sleep, to our happiness, to our sense of well-being. And so we try various ways of handling our guilt. None of which work with the sin of breaking God's law, but we try anyway, even if our efforts are in vain. So now what are some of the wrong ways that we try to handle to deal with our guilt feelings? You'll again look at your bulletin outline. The first there is by way of denial. Atheists like comedian Bill Maher and British evolutionist Richard Dawkins handle their guilt. They handle their guilt by denying the existence of God altogether. That's how they deal with it. These men and others like them are known to God and they're spoken of by God in the scriptures. Here it is. Psalm 14 verse 1. The fool says in her heart, in his heart, there is 
No God. That's how they, that's, that's how they handle it. There's no God. Well, that's good. That's the first phrase of the verse. But consider the remaining context of the verse. How's this going on and why is this going on? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. Roman, or Psalm 14, verse 1. The atheist, not the atheist alone, but the atheist is a person who by nature and by practice is corrupt, vile, and up to no good. That's what the psalmist says. In other words, he is guilt-laden with many sins, and that is why he is an atheist. That's why he takes this route. He's handling his sin. Get rid of sin and get rid of guilt will be taken care of in this way. Think about it. No God, no sin against God. No sin against God, no guilt is a lawbreaker. No guilt is a lawbreaker, no guilt feelings. No guilt feelings, I can sleep at night, my conscience is at rest. And they're handling the guilt through firstly denying here the very existence of God. Or again, the psalmist says of the wicked, he boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there's no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. He is haughty. And your laws are far from him. Well, of course, he's, he's a lawbreaker, right? So he has any time for God's laws. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy. I'll never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face. He never sees. Psalm 10, verse 3 and following. Well, how convenient. Just think about this. What is going on here is a lot of denial. He reviles the Lord. He does not seek Him. He does not acknowledge Him. He has no room for God. God's laws are far from his thinking. He boasts that life and living is fine just the way it is, while curses, lies, threats are everywhere present. And then finally, finally, he denies the omniscience of God, saying, You know, God suffers from memory loss. He has forgotten. He never sees. How convenient. Get rid of God and you rid yourself of guilt. But this is a little different than the sin of the lying prophets and the lying priests of Jeremiah's day. God says they dressed, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. Jeremiah 6. Verse 14 and 15. So even in the religious realm, here prophets and priests, within context, are playing the game of denial. Denial. Now, denial is not an adequate handling of guilt for three reasons. And you have these in your bulletin outline. Number one, God has written His law in the book of books, the Bible. That's the number one reason. He warns us in the Bible and He warns us in the same sense 
that he warned the new generation of Israelites through Joshua, who said this, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Joshua 1 verse 8. You will say, well, I don't have a Bible. Or, I have never read the Bible. Well, that's no defense. When I was in college, a professor would sometimes assign a reading from one of the books in the library. You could never check it out, but you had to use it right there because it was in the reference part. But anyway, he'd assign a chapter or a section in this book, and he'd say, you all have to read this because you're going to be tested on it on Friday. Only trouble was that with 100 students in the class, and that's no exaggeration, with 100 students in the class, you, you could never get your hands on the book because it was always being used by someone else. Well, what did the professor do? No excuse. Wait your turn, park yourself at the library desk, but read the text. Because you're going to be tested on it on Friday. No such problem today, because with a computer and the internet, a thousand students can read the same book online all at the same time. What I'm saying is that the Bible is readily available in hundreds of languages. You are not exonerated because you haven't read God's law. So that little technique of denial, well, I don't have a Bible, I've never read it. It's a way of trying to deal with guilt, but it isn't going to work. Secondly, denial is not an adequate handling of guilt because it doesn't matter that whether you have a Bible book or not. Let's think of maybe some of the third world countries that don't yet have the text. The truth remains that God has written His moral code in the heart or in the conscience of every person. Paul talks about this also in the book of Romans, the next chapter, chapter 2 there, where he reads verse 14 and following. He says, indeed, when Gentiles, now these are pagans, non-religiously taught, Gentiles, they're just, you know, they're out there in the world. They're not Jews. They don't have the scriptures. He goes on. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have a Bible, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show, they show, that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Romans 2, 14 through 16. He is saying there's enough witness for God to judge them in the day of judgment because the principles of the law are written on their conscience, on their heart. He's saying everyone knows right from wrong. Not just we in Western cultures who have a Bible. You don't need a Bible to know that. God has stamped on your soul, into your heart, into your mind, His moral code. Do Muslims have a Bible or do they use the Bible? The answer is no. Yet the penalty for being a thief is to lose your hand. To lose your hand. Where did they get the idea that stealing was wrong? You say, well, let's see, probably from the Koran. Okay, who wrote the Koran? Muhammad. 
Okay, where did Mohammed learn that stealing was wrong? He didn't have a Bible. He's not reading the Bible. The moral code of God resident in every human being. That's where he got it. And Paul admits that this inner consciousness of sin and righteousness is fickle. He says their thoughts now accusing them, now defending them. Depends on the situation. Why is that? Because inconsistency with what we know to be true is also part of the sin of our lives. I mean, think about this. We all fluctuate between doing good and doing even, even we who possess a copy of the Bible. We know right from wrong when we have it codified for us. But we still do this. So a person says, well, you know, I don't have a Bible, and I've never read the Bible. Firstly, it's available, but then secondly, if you're in a third world country, you have the moral code of God written on the heart that points not to a God, but the God of the moral code. The one who wrote the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 and other places, but who also has written it on your heart and conscience so that you know right from wrong. Missionaries find this out about indigenous tribes everywhere they minister. They go into bush people and find out, ah, oh, they have a moral code. They have laws, their own laws, against stealing, against adultery, against a lot of things that are written in the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Where'd they get that? God wrote it on their hearts. Thirdly, denial is not adequate, a way of handling guilt. Because in our guilt, get it now, we dumb down the prickly barbs of a sensitive conscience by adjusting our personal standard downward. Let your conscience be your God cannot be a safe rule for conduct because each person's conscience is formulated on the basis of their experience and their upbringing. The word conscience is a compound word consisting of con, meaning with, and science, meaning knowledge, thus with knowledge. Conscience, with knowledge. Well, that's fine as far as it goes, providing, providing that the knowledge a person has been taught is the truth and supports God's brand of morality. But consider a child who has been raised in an amoral or an immoral environment. I'm thinking here of the children that David and Felicia, our missionaries to Romania, work with. These street urchins in the city of Bucharest are orphans, or they are abandoned children. Their parents just dumped them on the street and drove away. Or they are runaways. And they are into drugs, and sex, and prostitution, and stealing. They were raised in an environment where these things were considered normal or the acceptable way to make a living. Their conscience doesn't bother them when they do these immoral things because this is the only knowledge they have. It's the only thing they've been taught. Well, since they were that high. They are operating with a defiled conscience and doing what they know. <laughs> and so the work of the Lees is to raise the standard of morality in these children by retraining their conscience with the knowledge of God, with the fact of sin, the need for repentance, Faith in Jesus as a Savior. In other words, these kids don't know they're lost. Don't know that what they're doing makes them morally culpable before a holy God. And so the gospel, and part of the gospel 
outcry, the gospel witness, is to explain what sin is that they might sense a need for the Savior. But conscience is not safe guide for another reason. In a move of self-preservation, all of us have this um, uncanny ability to dumb down the law of God so that we can do it and thus silence an accusatory guilty conscience. It's kind of like this. If I cannot rise to the heights of obeying God's law or His morality, if I dumb down the law, if I bring it down to within my reach, then I can feel good about myself and set my conscience at rest. We do this. I'm sad to say, we Christians do this too. <laughs> Let me give you an example. Revelation 21, verse 8 states this. All liars, all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. You're going to die physically someday, but then there's this second death that awaits all liars, among others. Now we have a tough time believing that God would punish liars with the same sentence as a murderer, which is also in the list. But to hedge our bet, we invent, we invent something. It's called the white lie. Well, what's a white lie? It's a lie to bring about some perceived good. We say, well, you know, a white lie isn't really a lie punishable by the lake of fire. Because in a white lie, we're not out to do evil, we're out to do good. In all this, we treat God like a university professor who knows that 50% of his class is going to fail his course unless he grades on a curve, but by dumbing down the standard, by saying, let's say, okay, then 60 is going to be a passing grade. With one stroke of his red pen, he has just made winners out of half the losers in his class. And as they end the semester, they feel good about their performance because the standard was lowered to the least common denominator for them to receive that passing grade. And that's what we do with God's law. Let me tell you something, and I hate to burst your bubble, but God does not grade on the curve. He doesn't grade on the curve. His standard is 100% perfection. And so Jesus commands us, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, verse 48. That is our obligation. But this is also the nail in our coffin because it is as the writer of Hebrews said about the Mosaic Law or the Mosaic Covenant. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another, but God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Hebrews 8, verse 7 and 8. Here's Paul's own confession. He says, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, good. Romans 7, verse 12. Okay, we say, okay. Then if that, that's true, what's the problem, Paul? Answer, he answers, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Romans 7, verse 18. What is he saying? He's saying this. Nothing wrong with the standard. Nothing wrong with God's law. Everything wrong with my ability to obey it. The fault of the old covenant lied within the people. 
And so it is with us. And denial is one way we try to handle our guilt. We try to dumb down the law and bring it within reach of our obedience abilities, but it won't wash. Denial will not wash away our guilt. A second way we try to handle our guilt is through rationalization. Rationalization is an attempt to justify our sinful behavior through comparisons, through redefinitions of what sin is, uh, even <laughs> through using God's character against Him, say, well, you know, God's a God of love. That's what I'm counting on. God is a God of love. And now this is a more direct approach to our guilt because instead of trying to quench the guilt feelings through denial, we go to the root of the guilt, which is sin. But the pathway we travel to do this is sin itself because we attempt to make little of what God considers very deadly. It is an attempt to mitigate or shift blame. We're the sinners, but we say, you know, Lord, there, was, there were mitigating circumstances. I did this because of this, this, and this. Or I did this because this person did this or this. When even her defense before God, she said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Genesis 3, verse 3. And when Adam said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Genesis 3, verse 12. These were rationalizations. They were attempts to point the finger of guilt in another direction. Undoubtedly, it made Adam and Eve feel better momentarily. Yeah, they thought they had dodged the bullet. But the curses of God which follow demonstrated in short order that God wasn't buying any of their blame shifting. There was no excuse for what they did. God's law was pointedly clear and made clear to them. The Lord had commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. Now, you read that statement. There's no ambiguity there. There's no mystery. There's no hidden meaning. There's no lack of clarity. Eat any fruit. Eat all the fruit that you want. But don't eat of this one tree in the center of the garden. And the penalty was stated when you do it, you will surely die. But the lie of Satan seemed more plausible. He comes along and he says, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3 verse 5. What, what's going on here? Satan used rationalization to make Adam and Eve feel good about breaking God's law. Good will come of this, and God knows that this is going to come your way. So what's your problem? Well, we do the same thing. You think about it. We will do almost anything to dull pain. To dull pain. The arthritics among us are always reaching for the aspirin or the ibuprofen. If we have a more debilitating pain like a migraine headache, we might reach for the Demerol or something stronger. After major surgery in the hospital, we are asking the doctor for morphine. We do this to kill the pain. On a number of occasions when we have rushed our children when they were younger or our grandchildren to the hospital in pain, we questioned the doctors in the emergency room why they didn't administer something for the pain. 
And we always got an answer similar to this. Well, in the diagnosis stage of our examination, we do not want to dull the pain. The pain and its location helps us find out what is wrong. So no, we're not giving any painkiller to your child. Rationalization is raising excuses for our sin in an attempt to handle our guilt feelings. And that can be deadly. If we are successful in silencing conscience to kill the pain, we may never deal with the sin lying below the surface with its festering poison and lying deception. You see, it is through the pinch of conscience that God is saying, forget the guilt feelings, deal with the sin that's causing them. Deal with the sin or die. What I am saying here is that God has your best interests at heart because in the court of God's impeccable justice there are no excuses, there are no arguments, there are no mitigating circumstances, there is no blame shifting, there is no alibi, there is no defense. Guilty as charged. Let me read it for you from the scriptures. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, I don't know, what nation isn't under the law of God? He's the creator. Think about this. Whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, so that, here it is, every mouth may be silenced. And the whole world held accountable to God. King James Version says, proved guilty before God. Let me read on. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Romans 3, verse 19 and 20. What is he saying? He's saying the law of God was not given to save you. It was given to condemn you. It was given to show just how hopeless your ability is to obey God apart from His grace. It's also hopeless to think that guilt can be rationalized away. Well, we'll just explain it away. We'll point the finger at somebody else. We'll point our finger at God and say, well, you know, if you hadn't done this, I wouldn't have done that. Try as you will, it will not work in the day of His examination. And then the third way people try to handle guilt is through performance. And I have to say that human law, human law now, human law, makes provision for such things as restitution or um, through in incarceration, satisfaction, or the penalty of the law. You've all heard the expression, if you don't want to do the time, then don't do the crime. But when a person is found guilty of a crime and is sentenced to prison for a length of time, when he is released from prison, we hear expressions like, well, he has paid his debt to society, so now he's free to go. In other words, by doing the time in prison, the law has been satisfied. But you know what? Doing the time in prison does not eradicate the guilt. It does not mean that the person didn't do the crime. The guilt remains, and depending on how active the conscience is, it may remain for the rest of one's life. In Matthew 18, Jesus answered Peter's question on how to forgive by telling the parable of a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And so one by one they came to him to pay off their debts. And we read, As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents. Now talent is it's a weight. They didn't have um, 
paper bills, dollars. Everything was paid in silver coins or gold coins, something like that. A talent is a lot of weight. And this guy owes the master 10,000 talents in our currency, millions and millions of dollars. As he began the settlement, a man owed him 10,000 talents came and was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Matthew 18, verse 24 and 25. Now, think about it. It's unlikely that even the liquidation of this debtor's assets, including his wife and children, who would be sold into slavery, it's doubtful he could raise enough money to clear the debt. But you see, that is just the point that Jesus is making here. Our debt to God, our culpability for breaking His law is so large, it is so encompassing as to be impossible to repay. This, could, this man could not repay, and he knew it. Oh yeah, he makes a paltry plea saying that if the master will be patient with him, he will repay, in his words, everything. Verse 26, Matthew 18. There was no realism here. Just wishful thinking. The man was drowning in debt. He needed more than a reprieve. He needed more than time to clear the debt. What he needed was the debt to be forgiven, which is exactly what the Master did. Do you know that this is all of us as sinners as we stand before God? The moral debt of our sin is so vast, so extensive, so consuming that we have no power by way of performance to eradicate it. A thousand lifetimes would not be enough time. Do you know we cannot even stick to a path of repentance and restitution for one month, let alone years and years and years and years and years and years and years. And I think it's good that we know this about ourselves. And that is why Jesus taught us to pray, and I'll use the King James translation here, forgive us our debts. Our debts. As we forgive our debtors. Matthew 6, verse 9 through 12. This was the lesson of the people that we just noted in this parable because the man who owed millions demanded pennies, pennies from one who owed him. And when he could not pay, he threw his debtor into prison for pennies. Well, the master found that out and meted out the same to him. And then Jesus gives this lesson. This is how your heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Matthew 18, verse 35. What's the principle? Here's the principle. You owe God millions. This is a huge debt. You will never, ever be able to pay it off. There is no, you, no way that you as a sinner to make restitution. Your only hope is if God will forgive your debt and wipe it off the ledger sheet. This is a move of mercy on God's point, and it is your only resolution to the guilt of your sin. Now, if you choose, if you choose to maintain your integrity and to think of yourself as not so bad as the Bible portrays you, if you think that there is still an ounce or two of goodness in you to satisfy your debt to God's law, then you, like the man in the parable, will experience the anger of God the Master. And it was stated this way. Turn him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay all that he owed. Matthew 18, verse 34. Wow. 
until he could pay it all? An infinite debt of sin will take an infinity of time to repay, and that's the horror of hell. There is no way out. Once you're consigned there. That's why today's the day of salvation. Performance will never clear your guilt because we can't perform well enough. That brings us lastly then to God's solution. What is His solution? It is this, to forgive the debt on the merit of His Son's sacrifice. Two things. God's leniency is no resolution. People in our day may indeed be so convinced that their sin is so great as to be beyond making restitution to God. They know, they know, they have sinned and sinned and sinned. They sense the aggregate weight of years of transgression. But, but, they are counting on what they consider their little ace in the hole. And it is this, well... God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. And He will never require payment for my debt. Oh, really? Really? That's what you're counting on, huh? If you think that, you are duped by the evil one. The master in the parable that we're reading, Matthew 18, the master is God the servant drowning in debt is you. And when he could not pay, when he remained angry and bitter and unmerciful towards others, God sent him to the torturers for eternity. Where in other parables we read the conclusion, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22 verse 13. And that's said in a lot of the parables. Why is that? That's because God is more than love. He is more than love. He is love. But He's more than love. He is righteous, just, holy, all of which demand that you pay for your crimes if you're going to take the payment route. If you're going to think, I can do this, then you'll do it. But you will do it for all of eternity. And may I say kindly, there's no salvation in that. Why would anyone choose that? That, to me, is irrational. God offers us relief of the debt. He offers us salvation as His free gift. And we're saying, I think I'd like to take the payment route. Can I pay on time? Can you set up a payment schedule for me? And God says, yeah. <laughs> There it is, second death, fires of hell for all of eternity. You're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. No relief, no relief, no relief. Oh, well, I, I don't know, I wasn't counting on that. No, you weren't. And the devil will see to it that you don't count on that. Secondly, here it is. God's leniency is not the resolution, but God's mercy is. In the parable, it was God forgiving the debt that truly dealt with the sin. How can He forgive the debt? Does He just go, oh, I just won't take a look at it. I'll pretend it's not there. I don't see it, I don't see it, I don't see it. He forgives it. By paying for it. Here again, no leniency with God. Someone's going to pay for your sin. You're going to pay for it in eternity on the payment plan. Or His Son is going to pay the debt and clear it for you. It 
in Dickens' Christmas Carol, the first ghost comes to Ebenezer Scrooge, and here's what he says. He's talking about himself. Oh, captive, bound and double-chained, wow, double-ironed, cried the phantom. Not to know that ages of incessant labor by immortal creatures, listen to this, by immortal creatures, for this earth must go into eternity before it is all developed. Not to know that any Christian spirit working kindly in its little sphere, whatever it may be, will find its mortal life too short for its vast means of usefulness. Not to know that no space of regret can make amends for life's opportunities misused. Yet, such was I. Oh, such was I. What is he saying? He is saying life was way too short to make amends for all my sins. And even in eternity, where the ghost now lives in incessant labor, he calls it, cannot make amends. He goes on, at this time of the rolling year, the specter said, I suffer most. Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never raise them to that blessed star which led the wise man to a poor abode? He never looked to the testimony of God's salvation that was there all along. He never looked up to follow the light that leads to Christ. And he never told anyone else how to find that Christ. And now in eternity, he's saying to Ebenezer Scrooge, I am in incessant labor, but there's all this chains and iron bars. I'm not free. I'm in anguish. Brethren, the only answer to the guilt of our sin is to have the sin, to have the debt forgiven. And to be forgiven, the debt has to be paid off by another, Jesus, God's Son. The Scripture says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Oh, oh, whoa, hey. Light of dawn there. Not counting men's sins against them? Oh, tell me more. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For He says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. And I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 and following. Brethren, that's how sin and its guilt is dealt with. You need a Savior to pay for it. And you need a God who says of His Son's work, Wow. I will not count man's sin against them because you took it upon yourself. Slate clean. Cross it out of the ledger. 
the debt has been paid. You don't have this Savior, you have no salvation. And I would charge you to come today. Now next Sunday, we're going to unpackage this even more and talk about how forgiveness is the only way to get rid of your guilt feelings. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for your grace and goodness. We thank you and praise you for the gospel. Wow. What a great good news. Good news it is. I pray for every sinner here this morning that's lost. May this be the day that you find them. May this be the day that they stop trying performance and live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us that we might become the righteousness of God. I don't want my sins held against me. But someone's going to have to pay for them, and I'm thankful that the Scripture says, You offered up your Son, did not spare Him, but offered Him up that we might be saved. Help us, Lord, in all these false attempts that we try to deal with sin. Help us to stop handling or trying to handle the guilt in these wrong ways. Do not allow Satan to convince us that these ways are just as viable. No, they're not. Help us to forget our denial and our rationalization and our performance and look to that one who's done it all and is willing to bestow it upon us as a gift, a gift. We will but repent and believe. Grant us that repentance and grant us that faith. Draw us effectually to yourself, we pray in Christ's name and for your glory.